Recovery Elevator, episode 143. That's one of the things that I find so radically different about the sobriety I have now is I can be around other people partying and I don't hate them because they can and I can't. That to me is the difference between just not drinking and being in sobriety. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 38.1 months. On today's podcast, we've got Amy. She's been sober for 11 years. She's 54 years old. She's from Illinois. And she talks about how she gave up the mind fight. I want to talk to you guys about an awesome event we have on the books January 20th in Dallas. We've got space booked at a Marriott. We're going to be doing a networking slash seminar event. I'm going to talk for a little bit and then we're going to expand our recovery portfolio or recovery community. It's going to be an awesome event. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas. You can buy tickets there and use the promo code podcast for $10 off. What exactly are we going to be doing in Dallas? Well, be prepared to get outside your comfort zone. Be prepared to laugh. Be prepared to meet honest and genuine other like-minded individuals. I cannot wait for this event. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys today about a reverse intervention. So we're all familiar with what an intervention is. We come into the house and boom, family members, loved one, friends, they're all sitting there waiting for us waiting to bombard us, a diatribe full of comments on how we need to stop drinking, whatnot. And unfortunately, the result of an intervention rarely results in somebody going to rehab or uh, propelling somebody into sobriety. But one good thing that can come from an intervention, for example, if you're listening to the podcast and you're a normal drinker, a good thing, in fact, the, the barometer for success is that it speeds up somebody's journey into sobriety. That's really all you're going to get out of an intervention. But let's talk about a reverse intervention. How does one do this? What is it? Well, it's when you put on the intervention. You do the talking. There's so much in regards to recovery, sobriety, alcohol that we cannot control. This is something you can control. You can put yourself in the front seat and you put on the intervention. So why are we doing a reverse intervention? Well, first off, they don't get it. They refers to the normal drinkers. As I've done the Recovery Elevator podcast, I've realized that two plus two does not equal four. Two plus two in recovery equals pumpkin. It makes no sense, even for those of us in recovery. So how can we expect the normal drinkers to understand what we're going through? So I had a reverse intervention, and I'm going to explain more about what that is exactly in detail in just a moment, but I had a reverse intervention in May of 2014 at Lake Powell at a houseboat with my parents, busted in the room at like 6.30 in the morning. I had been drinking. In fact, I had been drinking on this Lake Powell houseboat trip for like four or five days, and nobody knew I was drinking. I got tears in my eyes. I'm telling my parents, they're, they're in their bed. I'm saying, look, this is a real problem. I need to quit drinking. And later on that trip, I have the same serious conversation with my brother. Now, there's no coincidence that my sobriety date is just a couple months after those two pivotal reverse interventions. I also had reverse interventions with my fantasy football league members. Now, these are seven of my best friends. I sent them a text message. I had in-depth, real conversations with all of them. But even though you're going to have a real conversation with them, they're still not going to get it. 
In fact, I highly recommend you do a podcast and send links to your friends and family. It wasn't until after episode like 35 where my mom was like, wow, Paul, we had no idea. And then after I did a three-part series on my story, I heard it again from my mom. They're like, wow, Paul, we had no idea. I'm like, really? Remember that time when I bust into your houseboat quarters like 6.30 in the morning and I was drunk and I told you how serious it was? Well, you can't blame them. They're normal drinkers. Bless their hearts. Drink one for me if you are a normal drinker. So it is a reverse intervention. It's where you have a real conversation, preferably scheduled with a loved one, best friend, family members, whoever is close to you in life that can help you stay sober. And actually use the word reverse intervention. We want to avoid gray area slash conditional words such as, uh, you know, I could have a drinking problem. Uh, usually I can't stop after I start drinking. And, you know, I might be an alcoholic. Let's face it. If you're listening to this podcast, I'd bet the farm that you are an alcoholic and you do have a drinking problem. Maybe start the reverse intervention off like this. Hey, Troy. Thanks for coming to my reverse intervention. I have alcoholism. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That'll get started, right? And feel free to practice on a pet before you have your first human to do a reverse intervention with. Now, I'm serious on this. I used to look my standard poodle Ben in the eye, and I didn't really know I was practicing a reverse intervention at the time, but I was creating accountability with my furry friend, telling him how serious it was, but don't worry, Ben, I'm going to get it figured out. So a reverse intervention involves chairs. It can't be done like on a walk, in passing, you know, you're throwing the softball around. Hey, Timmy, real quick, I got to talk to you. No, preferably, like I said, it's scheduled, involves chairs, involves LaCroix, preferably, a quiet area, and some Kenny G in the background. Oh, yeah, and before I get any further, it doesn't matter where you are in sobriety. You could be still struggling, trying to muster up a couple days of sobriety, or you could have a couple years of sobriety. It doesn't matter where you're at. A reverse intervention is key to have to create that accountability with family members and loved ones. So why do we need a different setting and use the word actual reverse intervention? Well, it's because probably our loved ones have heard it many times before. Hey, Susie, I'm done drinking. Yeah, they hear this stuff all the time. But a reverse intervention must be much more than that. In fact, what it is, it's 50-50 a declaration to create accountability and you asking them for help. So what do you need to cover in a reverse intervention? Let them know this isn't easy for you. Not so much the alcohol part, but having this real conversation. You're being vulnerable. They're going to see that and be very responsive to you. You're going to tell them why you're doing the reverse intervention. You can use the words, I'm physically, mentally, and spiritually addicted to alcohol. Yeah, you might not be all three, but play the card you're dealt. They might even buy the ice cream or coffee for you. Duration. Say, hey, look, this isn't just for January or this isn't for Lent. I want to live a life without alcohol. Lay out a game plan. Say, hey, this is how I plan to be successful. Number one, I'm not going to drink. That's a little easier said than done, but then you're going to say, and you are going to help me not drink by keeping me accountable. You're going to tell them, hey, look, if I'm at a party and I leave, you're not going to say, hey, dude, Paul, where are you going? This party is just getting off the cheesy. I just made up cheesy so that the kids probably don't say that, but you get the point. You want to let them know that, hey, if I leave at a weird time during a party, it's because I'm not comfortable. And if you want to be my friend and support me in sobriety, you are going to say, hey, 
Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. All right. So you've just done a reverse intervention. And congratulations to you if you have, because I'm guessing 95% of the people who listen to this podcast episode won't do a reverse intervention. It's funny how the odds of getting sober about the same, about 5%. Strange. So if you do have reverse intervention, let's look at the results. Number one, you've heard me talk about the best gift that I've been given in sobriety, which is the friend filter. You must be prepared for a result that you might not be hoping for. That would be someone that's not a friend. But hey, good news. You don't have to spend any more time with that friend. But most likely after reverse intervention, you are going to bolster that relationship and it's going to be a more genuine relationship moving forward. You've just done two things after reverse intervention. You've upped your chances in sobriety and you've created accountability, which is huge in recovery. You've just expanded your recovery network. Depending on where you had your reverse intervention, you probably just got your meal paid for. You invested in your recovery. Now, just like your investment, that will pay dividends at a later date. By creating this accountability, you've avoided some pain in the future. And you never know. This pain could be a DUI, divorce, who knows? Like I mentioned, normal drinkers, they don't get it, which is why I've created a sample quiz you can give to the person you're having the reverse intervention with at the end of the reverse intervention. For example, you can say, okay, Mike, here's some questions. At Uncle Rick's retirement party six months from now, you will be offering me A, one sea breeze, B, two sea breezes, C, three sea breezes, D, zero sea breezes. Okay, Mike, question number two. In 1956, the American Medical Association declared this blank, which I have as a disease. We've got A, senioritis, B, rickets, C, the Dougie, or D, alcoholism. Okay, Mike, next question, true or false. You, as a close friend of mine, can help me stay accountable and help me be successful in my sobriety. All right, Mike, question four. I am blank over alcohol. We've got A, giddy, B, slurpy, C, powerless, D, Green Bay Packers. And next question, Mike, I'm going to slide you the piece of paper. This is a short answer or an essay. It's up to you, Mike. You can help me be successful in my goal of living life without alcohol in the following ways. Mike, you've got 90 seconds. Yeah, in reverse interventions, they don't have to be all doom and gloom. Like I mentioned, Green Bay Packers, Slurpee, that has nothing to do with it. It's kind of funny. Have fun with it. Humor is a huge part in recovery. You got to laugh depending on where it is because acceptance is the answer. Thank you, page 417. Okay, before we hear from Amy, let's hear from Cafe Ari. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Amy, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, Amy, great to have you here. Amy, let's get started. What's your favorite Flock of Seagulls song? 
I don't know what the Flock of Seagulls is. <laughs> oh, you thought I was going to ask you how long you've been sober. Flock of Seagulls is a phenomenal band from the 80s. I can only think of one song that they sang. That's, that's I Ran, I Ran So Far Away. So we'll just, uh, we'll just go on to the next question then, Amy. <laughs> how long have you been sober? I've been sober since August 4th of 206. Nice. Wow. That's 11 years. Congratulations. Before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Amy. Tell us where you're from, what you do for a living, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Wow, that's a lot. Well, I'm a Midwestern housewife, basically. I have two grown sons and a husband of 34 years, and I've done very eclectic work because my main goal was to raise my boys. And what do I do for fun? Well, that's changed radically in the last 11 years. But now what I do for fun is a lot of recovery things and a lot of enjoying nature. And I have four dogs, and I have a very simple life, which is a wonderful thing for me. I, I never wanted a big life. So I got exactly my heart's desire. Perfect. And so you got two grown sons. How old are you, Amy? I'm 54. 54. Awesome. Yeah. And let's back it up a little bit. When did you first notice that perhaps you don't drink normally? Actually, uh, when I when we contemplating having my first ch our first child, I always call him mine. <laughs> Was, uh, you know, in hindsight, not at the time, but in hindsight, it was kind of like I thought, okay, this will sober me up. You know, it's time to grow up. We've been married for a while and uh, we've been together for five years. And I really thought motherhood would be like the line in the sand of now I'm a grown up. And by the time I had my second boy, he's four years behind, that pregnancy, it really, really was when it dawned on me that I don't like being separated from alcohol and, and or cigarettes. And they were just starting a lot of the laws and that about women, pregnant women drinking. But when I got pregnant with my first boy, I knew for sure, and we planned our pregnancies. So I knew that I had already come to the realization that if I started drinking, I would drink till there was either no more booze, the night was over, or I passed out. So I had already figured out the all or nothing in myself at, at that point. But by the second, by the time I had the second boy, I swear every wedding, party, class reunion, everything that I would have drank my ass off that summer was the summer I was pregnant with that youngest boy. And at that time, when I was blocked from drinking, I would be very angry and very resentful that other people could and I couldn't. So that, that, that's one of the things that I find so radically different about the sobriety I have now is I can be around other people partying and I don't hate them because they can and I can't. That to me is the difference between just not drinking and being in sobriety. I feel like you just covered a pretty big topic in recovery, and that's a dry drunk versus someone who has healthy emotional sobriety. Being able to be around people who can drink normally and not resent the hell out of those people. Explain a little bit more about that. 
Well, I, I didn't grow up with any alcoholism. I grew up in a really funny way. That's why I don't know any of the music because we, we were not exposed to any of things like that. And I had a really odd existence. And so when I went away to college, I didn't know what band, what the bands were. I didn't know what anything was. So alcohol helped me pretend that I knew what was going on or ignore that fact. And I met my husband pretty quick into junior college and he's quite a bit older than me. And I always ran with the old older kids. And my husband always drank more than I did, um, not an amount like more, you know, but the party was on. But he realized very early. And so um, he always kind of controlled my drinking. And before I was even 21, he'd already taken that job because we got married when I turned 20. And so he was always like the gatekeeper. He, he always kind of took care of that role. So as much as I resented him being in control of me, I, I realized in sobriety, um, it's probably one reason I survived. And, you know, careful what you wish for. And I do have a couple of siblings that had to put the plug in the jug, as we say. And um, my father, I knew, like, I'm, no, I'm child number five, but I knew some, my older brother, um, brothers, and I have one sister, would, would talk about, like, dad drank when they were little. I never in my entire childhood did my dad drink, but whenever the subject came up, my mom got real cuckoo about it. And... Mm. So the only the only example of sobriety I ever seen were people that were miserable. So whenever anybody would say, you know, don't you want to be sober? I'm like, I'm, it didn't look good. You know what <laughs> it I looks mean? like it no is, fun. I'll pass. Yeah, it, it, martyrs. They're just big martyrs and angry. And I, what I know now is dry is like a dry drunk. And so it was just never attractive to me. So my husband and I never really considered me not not drinking. It was always just, what do we do about the consequences? How do we keep the consequences down? And I was a periodic, so it wasn't like a daily thing for me until the progression happened later on in life. And so after that second boy, I was 30. And, and one of my other things that I always thought is I'd age out of drinking too much. Like <laughs> I would just common misconception, age yes. Yeah, yeah. And since my husband's like, you know, quite a bit older than me, he's six years older than me. You know, when he was round in 30, I was just in my early 20s, you know, and when he was round in 40, I was still in my early 30s. So I was always like, well, of course, you're straightening up. You're old, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah, I'm a thinker, man. Yeah. And I was pretty much a beer drinker, so I believe the lie that, you know, alcoholics aren't beer drinkers. I never really got much into hard liquor unless it was just what I had to do, not by choice, you know. So so those are some of the things that I pondered. And since I had no viable information on alcoholism other than just don't drink, I, I, I call myself the wily coyote of alcoholism. I tried every. Thing that came along or every suggestion and, and I realized in sobriety all my suggestions and um, either I thought them up myself or people that weren't alcoholics gave me their techniques. Wait, are these suggestions on how to moderate your drinking or suggestions on how to get sober? Suggestions how to moderate. Oh, okay, give, give me a couple good ones here of, of rules that uh, just didn't quite pan out. Only drink on Fridays only drink you know the same amount as my husband and then when he would get too drunk i'd tuck him into bed give him a kiss on the forehead and go finish the job my husband's <laughs> six five 250 being generous and i could always out drink him 
Mm-hmm. And and I also always drank to blackout. So when people would tell me stuff, I didn't know whether I could trust it or not. And my husband always threatened to get a movie camera because those were just getting invented when we had children. And we never could afford one. Thank God almighty in heaven above. And my sister worked in a bar. And so she had a lot of this stuff you hear in bars. And I remember one time after my first son was born, because I know he was in his little carrier thing, I went to the bar restaurant I used to work at, and I was sitting there, and one of the regulars said, you know, trying to quit drinking is a waste of time. Just drink and get over it. And, you know, I kind of, that was probably the best advice I had, you know, because when I got, when I got into sobriety, I heard, you know, if you have to control your drinking, you can't enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, you can't control it. That sums it up for me. It's completely sums it up for me. So I just try to control how often, once a month, you know, those kinds. I I, I played with the time a lot. I fought time a lot. I didn't necessarily interpret that as fighting alcohol. You you mentioned some of the best advice you've ever heard was just get it over with, just drink. Now, do you think that perpetuated your journey, kind of sped sped things up a little bit for you? Because I've heard that too in AA. It's like, well, you need to go out and drink and drink fast. And again, that's what that's what Spain did for me when I owned a bar in Spain. That just sped up that journey for me. It was like three years out there. It was equal to like 10 years being back here in America. And that was the best <laughs> thing that could have ever happened to me. And do you feel like that's kind of what happened to you? A little bit. And also, you know, like, you know, well, hindsight's twenty twenty in this game. And your podcast is about talking to newer newcomers. That's one reason I got hooked on it. I love I love the newcomer. And because I got so much bad advice, that's one reason I love the podcast and, and, and this Facebook and this stuff, because people are getting true information about the disease they're fighting. It was like I got cancer treatments for alcoholism. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And part of my story is I was in mental health care. And as a child, they treated me for epilepsy. And what I was having was panic attacks. So my analogy for alcoholism is a lot of the same things. Once I really understood I had alcoholism, I started my recovery. But as long as I thought it was mental health, it was the pressure of being a parent, it was because all the cool people did it, then then I kept trying to figure out how to make alcohol work. But when I got the information that an alcoholic will never figure out how to drink safely, I completely gave up that whole mind fight of how well where and what this was ever going to it was like trying to pretend I you know people used to say to me where the where the hell are you from and I'm like I, I <laughs> Illinois yeah and, and and no I used to say Africa because I happened to cook in a restaurant with a four African-American gentlemen and we were really good buddies and I had to give up that job when I got too pregnant with my first one to stand behind the line and they're like oh aim you really blew your life you know and and so I used to say Africa because those guys would just hit the floor laughing you know because because like I do not look like I came from Africa nor do I act like it but it was like I always felt like I was from like some other planet I didn't fit in my family I I didn't fit being a girl. I didn't fit in society. It was unexplainable why I didn't fit. And so I just gave up. And so very few people really I communicated with or dealt with on any level. And the ones that did knew what a cuckoo bean I was, you know. So, you know, I just I just tried to play keep away and keep it under the radar, you know, out of respect for my poor husband. 
I dragged him home from a party and he never really left and we never really got engaged. And I, I don't know, we were just married one day. And if, if God wasn't doing for me what I didn't do myself, I think I'd still just be wandering around being a line cook. So, you know, God, God knows that I needed someone. So, you know, just pure dumb luck on my part. And he would be like, I don't know what I did wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> Amy, you dropped about 10 value bombs right there, but there's one in specific I want to cover. You said, when I finally figured out I have alcoholism, then you started to recover. Now, one thing that I've noticed in my journey, which is a big impetus why I started this podcast, is there's not a lot of information out there. It's a lot of like, well, what the hell is wrong with me? What the hell is going on? Now, in your own words, once you, once you learned you have alcoholism, which is disease, just like cancer, just like diabetes, just like multiple sclerosis, you know, you then you could, you're like, okay, I got this. Let's move forward. What is your explanation? What is your definition of alcoholism? Okay, I got this. What is it? My last drunk, and it's a long drawn out story, but I ended up hospitalized. And my physician, my psychiatrist, my counselor, my husband, they were all standing around my bed that next morning. And one, I didn't believe you could drink enough to kill yourself, but I came real close. Hmm. My husband found me and got me to the hospital or I'd have died from alcohol poisoning. And and that's not a dramatic, that's, that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is my doctor looked me in the eye and said, Amy, you have alcoholism. And for some reason, I, I knew it to my toes that he wasn't shooting an angle and he wasn't talking about amounts and all of the sidebar. Because they talk about the symptoms, but he told me the disease. And, and the counselor and the psychiatrist and all of them whom I trusted and had been in my life for a while confirmed. And, and that was my last drunk. So then how, how did you do it? They said, it looked in, look at you, your family's by you in the bed, and you, just, you have alcoholism, Amy. What, what next? The psychiatrist and the counselor had diagnosed me correctly with my mental health issues. I have PTSD. I always got the diagnosis of depression. I always got a diagnosis that didn't quite feel right. And so I was half in the game. And the same when they told me, you have PTSD. These are what, these are, this is what's happening to you. And, and they were right. So when they said, Amy, you also have alcoholism, and these are the symptoms, and this is how it's presenting itself, and I felt the truth in it. And they handed me a meeting list, and I put on my pajamas, because that's what I ended up going to the hospital in, and I immediately just started going to 12-step meetings, and I devoured the book. I didn't have the comprehension to do the first 164 right away, so I read the stories. I devoured grapevines. And I finally felt like I've landed on the planet that I belonged in that I'd been seeking for 43 years. Because I always knew there was something different about me. And so one of the great graces of being in recovery is I found my herd. I grew up on a farm and my mom read that Dr. Seuss book, um, Who's Your Mother? Mm-hmm. And I never fit, and I had a really odd childhood. And so when I got in and in, in around recovery and people would share and I knew exactly what they were talking about, I finally felt like I found my planet and I found the people of origin that I came from. So there is strength in numbers. You know, going about it alone is agonizing. It's exhausting. I personally try to do it myself. What did it feel like when you finally found your herd, when you found your tribe? It so radically changed my life. My husband calls me the second wife without the paperwork. (laughs) 
I never talked. I didn't interact in society. I was definitely afraid of people. And now I seek out social situations. I have more friends than I can handle because they didn't tell me what was wrong with me and I didn't feel ridiculed. They very privately told me how they felt and how they thought. And, and, and it wasn't about what we did or what we drank or, or, you know, was it Tuesday or Saturday? It was about loneliness and misfittedness and not always feeling like you're one step off at the dance and no matter how well you got your hair done or you wore the right clothes when you went into the event you were just overwhelmed with loneliness or anxiety and those were the things that I had never heard another human admit until I got to 12-step meetings where people didn't tell me what was wrong with me. They told me that what, what they perceived was wrong with them, but also how they, they had a solution. Because for 43 years, people had pointed out what was wrong with me, period. No one had a solution. So one reason I trusted the psychiatrist and the counselor I had and, and, and my husband is they were the people, the three people in this world that were truly trying to help me find solution and not just keep telling me why I was a problem. Sure. And you why mentioned was, the first 164 of the big book is the solution, which is cool about that. You know, the second half is stories. Tell me more about the solution and when did the rubber start to hit the road? When did the light bulb start to go off like, hey, I can, I can do this. This is, this is what's wrong and this is how I'm going to fix it. Four. Step four. Yep. I agree. And I, I very much respect the traditions. And so one, two, three came easy for me because of my personal life. Four through nine are what saved my life. And I was one of the wackadoos because of my mental health care and because of the recovery I had from my mental health um, issues with, with talk therapy and some other um, techniques that they were using for me. And they used the same techniques on soldiers and other people that had the background I had, you know, trusted scientific. Here's a room full of people that told me when I started doing like my four through nine, I got well. So I was pretty on board and I did, a, I did my, I, I wasn't an avoider, let's say. And because my sponsor very much respected my mental health care, I did some of my work with my counselor because it would have been inappropriate for me to just dump some of that stuff on the average housewife. <laughs> And so, you know, she helped me piece it apart and my counselor helped facilitate some of those parts for me. But it was important for me to do it with my um, sponsor be to become part of. Sure. So and uh, that's what uh, and when start, things started changing, they taught me this poem. When people pleasers stop pleasing their people, people won't be pleased. And when I started displeasing people and it didn't send me into a ball of symptoms, I realized that I was tapped into a power source that I had never been able to acquire through religion, which I always did a lot of religion. And I always had a deep faith. But the difference with doing 12 step for me is I found a faith that worked like gas. You know, like if you have a car, but you don't put no gas in it, you ain't going forward. I had a car. I knew how to even drive, but I never had no gas. And the 12-step program put gas in my tank. And I started saying, no, I don't think I'll do that. Or no, I'm not agreeing to that. And I just could finally 
speak up and find my voice. Amy, do you remember about cravings? Did you have any cravings in early sobriety? And even with 11 years of sobriety, have you had cravings? And what do you do when they come? I don't really have cravings because for me, my life was so bad and alcohol hadn't been fun in a long, long time. So for me, it would be like, you know, the party was gone. One thing that fascinates me about younger people, I mean, the party was gone by 30 and I didn't give up drinking until I was 43. Those last years of drinking, I wasn't a maintenance drinker because I wasn't physically addicted, but I was mentally addicted to just checking out. Mm -hmm. I wasn't partying with other people. I would drink to sleep because of my symptoms. I would drink to escape. I would drink to make time go away. I, I was a person that enjoyed blackouts because like you would wake up and it would be like two days later. And I thought that was fabulous because I was just always marking time. So for me, the craving is, is just something I really don't have other than a, I would have a fleeting thought of feeling left out when other people are maybe having a drink, but I don't crave it or, or desire it at all anymore. And, and I did it right away. That's one reason I think without my mental health care, I would have been a chronic relapser. So I, I came through the mental health care, and so I had a lot of support. One reason I'm picking the career I'm doing is, is I didn't know how grateful I should be, but I was seeing a mental health counselor multiple times a week. I went to meetings every single day for two and a half years. Wow. I I never had friends. I didn't know my neighbors. I didn't socialize with people so my drinking was alone in secret and it wasn't fun so I don't have the perception oh I'll go to a baseball game or I'd go to a concert because I've never been to a baseball game or a concert so when I hear people say when they miss it I'm like I didn't do that shit to begin with so I don't think I missed it. <laughs> Amy you mentioned oh. something earlier I'm looking at my notes right now and you said give up the mind fight and I know what that means as soon as I just gave up, right? You know, the alcohol knocks you down time to time again. As soon as I just didn't get back up to get in the fight with alcohol, that's when the, uh, the opportunity to get sober arrived. And tell us more about what it meant for you to give up the mind fight. And that's basically, you know, the gift of desperation. What does that mean for you? When I heard a man say two, two things, and I knew it was true, I can drink. I can drink with the best of them. I can't say I can drink safely. And the other one that I heard that just absolutely did me in was, once I take the first drink, I have no control of, over my decisions or where it'll take me next because I, I drove drunk. I was making really poor choices and I knew it. And that's what I mean by I only focused on the consequences. I I didn't know. And so when they told me it's the first drink that gets you drunk. And I remember coming home and I told my husband, it's the first drink that gets me drunk. And he's like, no, it isn't. It's old Mr. Number eight. Cause we tried <laughs> to figure out how to get past Mr. Number eight for a long time. And I said, no, if I never start. So that's what I mean. I'm not tempted by the first one because to me, it's just got skull and crossbones on it. But I really just found, tapped into a happiness. I spent so much energy trying to figure out how alcohol could work. You know, I, I just put that energy into how can I make my life fulfilling? And I get way better returns without the shakes. 
<laughs> without the humiliation, you know. So the mind fighting was is the big number one. You know, my my the person I'm around now, she calls it uh, zero, and I was on step zero for you know thirty years. Mm -hmm. And what you just said has profound importance. It was. You spent so much energy finding ways to drink normally to control your drinking, but you just use that energy now to find different alternatives to for happiness, and that's the whole crux of it. If we took, if we, if everybody takes their energy, we find a drink normally and just put it towards you know finding a healthier life. It's it's incredible. And you mentioned earlier the dry drunk component with eleven years of sobriety. Has there ever been a time in there where you woke up and you're like, you know what, I think I'm doing the dry drunk thing? Not so far. It's so hard to explain, but. My late 40s and my 50s is the first time in my entire existence that I, I felt that I wanted to be alive. And those are outside issues. I, I thought, okay, I'll get out of childhood and this will straighten out. And then I thought, okay, when I'll be a mom, it'll straighten out. And then, you know, I was always waiting for some outside thing to fix my insides. Mm -hmm. And when I got into mental health care, I thought, okay, now this is going to fix it. And all of those things did improve the situation, but the true last link in the chain of, you know, like Wizard of Oz going from black and white to color has been sobriety, has been sobriety. And Amy, what are some rules you live by in sobriety? I try to give back what was so freely given to me. I try to give hope to the hopeless. I try to encourage people that the fun's not in the bottle, the fun's within you, and, and it just it's just blocked. I don't like to generalize people, but I'm becoming a recovery coach, and um, you know some of the statistics: 70% of the people in recovery, especially women, have some kind of abuse or trauma. It's a byproduct of some other deeper problem. I mean, they knew that in the 40s. You know, alcoholism is just a symptom. But I couldn't work on my other stuff while I was drunk. So sobriety has given me the, the base that I can use the tools, you know, and it says right in our literature, listen to your doctors, listen to counseling, go to your priest or minister. Sobriety is a base that I can finally have the life I so dreamed I was living while I never left my couch or got dressed. So for me, I didn't know there was this much joy. Um, you know something about me, like your listeners don't know, but like only about five people on the planet knew I was funny. And when I got into sobriety, my sister and, and some of my brothers, they think they're pretty funny, you know. And um, I, at some family party, I said to one of them, like, people think I'm funny. And they're like, you're not funny. You're weird. And so, like, the joy of who I was meant to be can finally come out, you know. So the one gentleman I love very much, he'd be my sponsor if he wasn't a man. Um, he says, you want to meet a stranger. You do these. You do your four through nine and you're going to meet a complete stranger and that's been my experience you know so i you know become the person i believe my higher power always meant me to be before other things changed that for the for the negatives so you know hindsight's 2020 but i'm finally the person i believe that i was uh i was meant to be and listeners, Amy Burroughs is probably one of the top five funniest people I have ever met. And you might recognize Amy's voice and the name Amy because four or five podcasts ago, she was on the panel at the Recovery Elevator Retreat. You know, I first saw Amy show up. I kind of I was like, oh, this could be the wild card. I'm not really sure how she's going to fit in. 
And then she does this stand-up comedy that just came out of nowhere. And you had 30 people just rolling. I mean, we had no idea what hit us. And it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And just to see that blossom because it, like, makes my heart hurt knowing that you went through a decade, two decades of having that suppressed. Because that's who you are. Just seeing you in your natural element, it was contagious. And the retreat wasn't the same you know, after you got up there and, and just crushed it, it was incredible. And you mentioned, uh, I forgot. Yeah. Tell us some more about this recovery coach thing. And if you're listening to early sobriety, Amy would be a phenomenal recovery coach. I've met her in person. You've heard all the value bombs she's been dropping right now. Tell us how we can get a hold of you too. If, if we'd like to learn more about your services. Well, um, recovery coaching in Illinois is being developed And the person who I met early. Um, she was, the, one of the first people I met, um, she actually told me about this because she she loves me and she's known me 11 years. And what you basically are, the person's private PA for sobriety. And I, I'm cheerleader, I'm mother, I'm pusher, I'm I can reflect what I see. And the ultimate decision is always for the per, for the client in sobriety. But it's one on one personal recovery, which is one of the things that I think uh, was missing in my life. So you're a life coach, but for sobriety. So and when I did my steps and when I got into recovery, I finally realized how many people in my life that didn't have the right title. People were my mother, even though I didn't really get mothered by my mother. People were my sister. They just weren't my birth sister. People were my cousins, even though they were not my cousins. I got enveloped in, in, in different ways. And when people share their story with me, I can point out where I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Their higher power has been always with them. It's just a, a lack of perception. And, and, and the thing I love the best about recovery coaching is you build on what you do have instead of constantly focusing on what went wrong. My job is to pick out what went right. And if you even meet me, something's gone right. Cause you met a recovery coach. <laughs> if, if you had two meetings with me, something's gone right because you must have clothes on and got to the office. If I follow you to an apartment, the word means that you've rented an apartment, you know? So it's <laughs> all good. Look at it. Yeah. So it, I just surround myself with absolutely the winners of this whole deal and, and get to share in their victories. It, it, I, I feel guilty getting my check. I feel guilty getting my check. It's the best gig I ever came up with, you know? Can listeners get in touch with you? I know you probably don't have a Twitter handle. Would you no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have an email address? <laughs> I'm Twitterless. <laughs> yeah. I do have I do have an email address. It'll be on the show notes. I'll give it to you later because it's a little confusing. And, uh, and I'm open to always uh, you passing on my information, but that's one of the things that's still in my, my history is I, I, I don't expose myself to just varieties of people because one of the things about if you step out and you reach your hand out, I'll meet you, but I'm not coming to your house and putting your sweater on for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. yeah, I, no, that's I, fair. There's got to be fair. a little effort on the other part, you Absolutely. know? So, you know, uh, I definitely would give you that information, Paul, but uh, the listeners and the people around, I, the first, the first step of recovery is you got to put your shoes on and get busy. One man says, you know, you're, they're probably not going to come to my house and beg me with treats and, and, and cookies to come, to come do my own sobriety. 
I got to put my shoes on, get in my car, and be here on time. So there we and go, listeners. You got to go to recoveryelevator.com. Go to episode 143. Search through the show notes and find the contact information for Amy again. Uh, I forgot about the recovery coach thing, but God, you would be a phenomenal recovery coach. I'm excited for the work that you're going to do with people in the future. And Amy, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Absolutely. Number one, Amy, what was your worst memory from drinking? Driving um, my children and, and neighbor kids to great America and um, home in a blackout. It's over an hour on major highways from our home. Wow. And next question, Amy, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating, huh, I can't control my drinking? Second preg pregnancy, the day I brought him home, I wanted one glass of wine and I got really drunk. And when I woke up, there was a newborn in the house. And Amy, with 11 years of sobriety, you've seen a lot of recovery tools and you've got a lot of things in your recovery portfolio. What's your favorite resource in recovery? 12 step meetings, personal relationships, and doing things like this out of my comfort zone. I love it. And Amy, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Just try because you can always go back to hell. Hell doesn't close its door. Nope, that old way of life is always there waiting for you. Oops, skipped question. Amy, with 11 years of sobriety, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You know, I, I don't have a plan. That's one of the best things about sobriety. I wake up every day and go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll do it like today. I There's sometimes I have to hit the time button, but most of the time, when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, it doesn't even match because I, I couldn't guess this this great of an existence. I just couldn't even guess it. And Sometimes Amy, I feel like I better pack a lunch because I might get hungry. <laughs> I love it. And Amy, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or listeners who are already doing it? The only thing I can say is is come join us, come join us. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if everything that I was trying to get out of alcohol, I've gotten tenfold in sobriety. It was such a liar. It was such a false liar. And everything that I wanted, companionship, romance, fun, sunshine, excitement, lack of boredom, all is ten times better in sobriety than I ever got from alcohol. I couldn't not have said that better myself. And before we depart, Amy, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. <laughs> if you wake, wake up five years married going, did I do really do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Paul. Ken Burns is the shit. Okay. Well, alcohol is shit. Not the shit, but Ken Burns is the shit. He's the guy that does all those historical films on Netflix, or you can see them on Netflix. And I was watching one on the Civil War, and there was a crazy stat that I wanted to share with you guys. It said 40 out of 1,000 soldiers were hospitalized for alcoholism during the Civil War. That's nuts. So I guess you could say 40 out of 1,000 soldiers, or 4%, went to rehab, shall we say. 
It's crazy how those stats mirror the same figures in today. Okay, recovery elevator. Before we close out, I just want to mention Dallas one more time. January 20th, 2018, get your year started off right. It's going to be a blast. All right, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Oh, 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 o